The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Wednesday, June 21st, 2023. Where'd the time go? Where did the time go? Where were we last time? I was just getting over a nasty cold. It was still May on the calendar, and I was about to go shoot a 1,600-point weekend at Milan. There we go. Is your shooting coat fitting a little bit better? Are those straps snugging up where they were last year? Because they should be. It's prime time to be in prime shooting shape. Hey, Banks just had an idea before we got started here. If you or someone you know deserves a quick shout-out for an accomplishment, send me some details, and I'll get that taken care of. Maybe a junior had a great score and took the match win, or maybe you're a sharpshooter and shot a master score setting a new personal best. Maybe you just earned your first leg points. I don't care. If you're proud or proud of somebody else, shoot me a message at jp at hphpodcast.com. People deserve some praise, so let's get it done. Since last time, we knocked out a 1,600-point match and then a quick 80-round league match the following week, and I had a blast at both of them. I learned a lot between the two matches and had some self-reflection afterward and also a few shower thoughts. Now I'm thinking I should get a waterproof dry erase board for the shower to write some things down. I hate forgetting my awesome ideas that I came up with at some really inopportune moments. I'm sure the shower dry erase board is probably how Einstein operated. Has to be. First off, I learned that I need to use less CLP on the bolt carrier group. I had previously been using 0W50 motor oil for bolt lubrication. It had been working for a while, but I started to get crusties on the bolt and it was taking upwards of an hour to clean. It was a good recommendation from a cool guy in Tennessee, but I need to make a change. Someone recently recommended CLP for bolt lube and it's been great so far, but it's a little watery so I found myself accidentally applying way more than I need to. And it ended up all over my cheeks at the match. Little to my knowledge until walking around with a bunch of black smudges on my cheeks. Also, real quick, I wanted to pass along a cool tip from my shooting pal Jerry regarding the Auto Trickler V4. He mentioned that the tolerances of a charge could actually be tightened up by tricking the software. In the previous episode, I had mentioned that telling it to throw an arbitrary charge of, say, 24.20 would yield an acceptable charge of 24.18 to 24.22. 0.18 to 0.22. So a 0.04 grain spread error. Really not bad. Jerry taught me a cool trick where you could tell the V4 to trickle to 24.2 and then tap the plus 0.01 button on the top right of the home screen just one time. That little button tap will require the V4 to target 24.21 grains and only show a green light when the charge is 24.20 to 24.22. In essence, that tightens up the tolerances by two hundredths. Okay, not a life-saving step here, but if we're going for perfection, it's a step in the right direction, and I have to appreciate that, so thank you, Jerry. Also, as I think about it now, the new update from Adam McDonald and his crew is mildly frustrating. If you're using an auto-trickler V4 and have the new software update but haven't used the new settings yet, be prepared to be a little frustrated. After calibration of the unit, I'm seeing so many overthrown charges. It's slowing things down, and it's a pain in the tail. I had planned on loading approximately 300 rounds yesterday. I could only get through about 150 before running out of time. 
Time to do some asking around and see if I can find some good settings for Reloader 15. Moving forward and getting into the goodies. Today is packed with a bunch of, well, ramblings. But also some tips that I learned over the past few weeks that I thought were worthwhile to share. I also want to bring you in on a little behind the scenes item that I've been doing over the last six months or so that's kind of useless but also kind of neat. So let's get after it. Today's results rundown is from two matches, the 1600 in Milan, Illinois, and the 80-round league match night. I'll keep that part kind of brief because I want to focus on some thoughts that came up and some experimentations that I had on the range. First, the 1600. Remember when I said that Milan, Illinois attracts some seriously challenging competitors? Well, it did. Thawing out from the frozen north was our friend Liam. Our high-power savior from the home state of Illinois was Conrad Powers, praise be his name. And the cowboy gunslinger who can pound the X-ring like a two-ton elephant, Morgan from Iowa. Spelt with an E-N, by the way, not an A-N, whoever needs to hear that. Those three put up a raging fight throughout the weekend, and I learned a little bit from each of them at some point throughout the matches. After the first day of fighting tooth and nail for points and finishing with a 787 and 30X, I ended up with third place, with Morgan leading by more than five whopping points and Liam just one point ahead of me. The second day was much more friendly with the 792 and 42X. Even that score was not enough to capture the lead though. Morgan and Liam finished a point ahead of me and Conrad had a dominating 795 for the day. Overall, at the end of the match, Morgan and Liam finished first and second and I took third. Knowing my mistakes I have made throughout these two days, I'm actually pretty pleased for that third place finish in some really, really, really tough conditions. Actually, they weren't very hard at all. Yeah, shut up. I know. I know. Yeah, it wasn't that hard. It was just sloppy on my count. Anyway, out of the 1600, I finished out with a 1579 and 72X. I've learned to strive for about a 50% X count and is coming along slowly but surely. Anyway, congrats to those guys for dropping the hammer that weekend. It was fun. The 80 round match also went out without a hitch. Is that the right saying? Went off without a hitch? On without a hitch? Either way, you get what I'm saying. It was testing a lighter load of 23.6 grains of Reloader 15 under a Sierra 77 all day, which seemed to work quite dandily. After a 196 and offhand, I was able to finish quite strong with a few more clean targets, and I finished off the day with a 796. Obviously, I'm quite pleased with that, but I still felt like there was some room for improvement in offhand. But getting back to some meat and potatoes stuff, I want to get back to Milan for a minute, or three. The 600-yard line was where I really wanted to focus. I don't normally do this, but after shot number eight or so in the string of 20, I was favoring rather than clicking for Sunday's 600 slow prone. The wind was present, but it wasn't really changing that much. It wasn't enough to blow me out of the 10 ring, so as long as I was able to watch for severe letoffs or even the occasional switcheroo, I was probably good as long as I was holding center. So I started favoring a little bit. It made things really easy because rather than dropping the butt out of my shoulder, adding a click of right windage, and then trying to rebuild this nest with my NPA, I could just focus on pushing it a tad to the right if I started moving my spotter to the left after shots. It's a technique that my grandfather uses on very rare occasions, and I found it really useful in these conditions. We usually call it chasing the spotter or some variation of that. It's not my favorite technique in most circumstances, but in my opinion at this time, it was fine to give it a try. I ended up cleaning the last 11 shots without moving the windage knobs once or dropping the butt out of my shoulder. 
I used to call this rage firing when I got frustrated at 600 and before I knew any better, I just wanted to finish out the string and get it over with so I just fire quickly, which actually led to some better finishes than the string started. Anyway, we're getting off topic here. I was also trying out a theory that I had heard the night before over a glass of cold barley soup. And before I get too far into this, realize that what I'm about to say is not gospel and it's just theory and maybe old wives tales and it has limited testing, but I felt I had nothing to lose and try to give it a shot. So remember a few episodes back, I had mentioned that this particular range in Milan, Illinois has a large downhill angle to the 600 yard targets. Okay, well, it does a significant amount. It's so steep that from the prone position at 600, you typically cannot see the 300 yard flag below you. So pretty steep. Here's the theory. When the wind directly blows in your face, favoring slightly low will prevent high shots. The thought process behind all this is that the wind blowing uphill for approximately 200 yards or so leading up to the firing line would cause the bullet to rise for a short time after leaving the muzzle. Naturally, being dumb and impressionable, I was intrigued by this, and because I was losing shots out the top during said wind conditions on Saturday, I thought I had nothing to lose and I thought I'd give it a fair chance. Surprise, surprise, it seemed to work like magic. But I'm not 100% sold on the technique yet, and to be fair, it was a 50-50 chance whether I'd get it right or wrong, but most of my 50-50 chances I get it wrong 80% of the time. So again, a few caveats, I only had these conditions for approximately four or five shots. However, each time I fired what I would consider a mid-ring 10 at 6 o'clock, it would end up being an X or near X on elevation. Why did I guess that 6 o'clock mid-10 ring was a good starting point? I have no idea. None. Just a safe bet that if the theory was hog mama, I would still end up in the 10 ring, and if the wind was fairly consistent, I would be okay. Also, if this technique or theory or wise tale, whatever we're calling it, actually happens to be factual, I have no idea how to measure it. It's not every day you get to shoot downhill into an upwind vectoring wind measuring elevation. Also, there aren't many ranges like Milan, so it's a technique used solely for these very few ranges. Anyway, I want to justify why my gut is telling me that this idea of holding low and shooting high in that wind is a real thing. But first, you know me, we got to get off topic here and go into an unrelated physics lesson that goes into a bit of this wind thought. And I'm not a physics major, but I can use a word or two here and there just to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. And no, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. In my world away from the shooting range, everything is about vectors. Up, down, left, right, horizontal, what's your vector, Victor, if you catch my drift. Also, I took a course in college called Physics for Aerospace but I barely walked out with a B minus, so don't judge me too hard here. Also, I ran into that professor one time at a bar eating corn dogs at 2 a.m., so I'm guessing his heart maybe wasn't into teaching as much as we were led to believe. All right, so I'm aware that there's always about four forces acting on a bullet, but the proper names for two of them are escaping me, and I'm probably going to use the incorrect term here. First guess on the force name, let's just call it lift, because I'm familiar with that vector, in the upward direction though it's somewhat negligible. Then gravity, for sure, opposing lift in the downward direction. I'm going to take another wild stab at a vector and just call it momentum or inertia, allowing the bullet to travel forward. And then opposing the forward vector would be the rearward vector of drag, pulling the bullet backwards. 
So for up, we have lift. For down, we have gravity. Forward would be inertia or momentum. And then in the rearward direction would be drag. And for the most part, none of these forces are equal. For them to be equal, the bullet would be flying through the air at unaccelerated velocities, holding perfect altitude. And to be truthful, I don't want to focus on what I just referred to as lift so much, but here's where I want to make my stamp in the mud. When a bullet is on the way to the X-ring, it is slowing down. We know that. And that's a vector, or just line with an arrow, pointing backwards compared to its forward movement. And it's dropping. We also know that. That vector is pointing relatively straight down as opposed to the bullet's path. Alright, so we have one vector pointing backwards towards the shooter, called drag, and one pointing downwards towards the center of the Earth, called gravity. Those aren't all the vectors toying with our shiny Sierra or burger or whatever, but they're two important ones to my point. The drag of the bullet is overcoming the inertia of the forward movement, causing a slowdown. And gravity is defeating lift, or whatever we call it, at a constant 9.8 meters per second squared. Someone please write in and tell me what the title of the lift vector is. Anyway, so the bullet in essence slows down, but it also loses altitude. But a few unique things happen at this range at Milan, or any range that's similar to Milan, I suppose. First, not even including wind in our discussion, the downward angle of the muzzle to the target changes our two vectors a little bit, causing kind of a snag in our perfect bullet flying world. As we shoot at a downward angle, gravity still acts in the same direction, which is toward the center of the Earth. But since the path of the bullet at Milan isn't traveling at a relative 90 degree angle to gravity or parallel with the horizon, it's going downward now, the gravity vector starts to add to the inertia vector. That was confusing even for me to write down so I didn't screw it up. Think of it this way, if I shoot a round perfectly 90 degrees at the sky, which you should never do, there are two forces acting on slowing down your bullet. Drag from the air going past the bullet, and gravity acting perfectly in the opposite direction of bullet travel. Both forces are slowing the bullet down. Now when I shoot a bullet across the range, parallel to the Earth's surface, gravity pulls the bullet toward the Earth, and in simple terms, the air drag slows down the bullet's velocity. However, when I shoot a bullet down the mythical hole to China that we used to dream about as dumb little kids, gravity is actually acting as an accelerating force on the bullet. Now, obviously, drag is going to overcome the inertia at some point, and the bullet will slow down to its terminal velocity, but that's neither here nor there because we're in imagination land. So, any time that I fire my rifle at an upward angle or a downward angle, Gravity will either act as a minor decelerator or accelerator, respectively. And keep in mind, it's just, it's minor. I can't begin to imagine the actual numbers on it, but believe it or not, they actually do exist. I just learned about this little nugget. Some rifle scopes are manufactured with the ability to counteract this physics problem with a look angle adjustment. Way above my head. So where am I going with this little piece of whatever? I've heard a few people walking off the firing line at Milan saying their zeros are actually a minute lower than their home range at 600 yards. I've heard a few naysayers say that a lot of that might actually be unusual body positions required to shoot this range, and shooters that haven't shot this range for a long time are creating some tension somewhere in their NPA causing some zero problems. That might actually be true. 
I can't really argue with that here. Personally, I believe the gravity vector may be part of the reason for zero changes. And I just had another idea. Later today, I can go back to my applied ballistics app and put the look angle mathematics into it and see what it comes out with. Okay, so that was a long detraction from whatever topic we were trying to make earlier. That's the wind in your face discussion. My bad. But knowing all that may help. So here we are shooting downhill at 600 yards and we have our dead nuts zero hitting the X-ring every single time. Yeah, keep dreaming, dude. All of the four forces at this point are equal enough to land the bullet in the X-ring when you aim it. Now we enter wind, whether it left, right, up or down, whatever, it will affect the travel of your bullet enough to piss you off at some point if you don't make a change. But we really never get that upward wind, do we? I mean, how many times has your buddy come off the firing line saying that the wind was from down below? Uh, never, hopefully. I'm sure if I came off the firing line at Camp Perry and told my buddy Jerry that I had an upward wind of six clicks, he'd say what he said to me before. You aren't the dumbest guy in the world, but you better hope that guy doesn't die. So we enter this upward vector of wind into our bullet at Milan, albeit not for a long time for this specific range, maybe 100 to 200 yards of the first few moments of bullet travel. Tough to measure. When we add the wind moving upward against the direction of gravity, it has to have an effect on bullet travel. It has to. It's physics. How much, though? I have no clue. Apparently, three to four inches for the exact velocity and upward travel at the time I was shooting 600 on that one fateful Sunday. Again, upward velocity vector of wind, fights gravity, elevation should, according to physics, raise the impact of the bullet. That's it. Now just to clean up some of that wind calling nonsense. If you've seen the same thing or want to fight me on this, please do. We know I'm an open door for suggestions and I don't mind admitting when I'm wrong. Just have some factual data so I can include it when I refute myself on the next episode. JP at HPHpodcast.com. All right, welcome back. Let's jump into a sort of off the wall equipment engagement to cover something that I've been doing behind the scenes to how my body's performing throughout the season during competition. Today, we're going to talk about WHOOP. W-H-O-O-P WHOOP. In a nutshell, it's a biometric fitness band that tracks your heart rate and other biometric factors to give you an idea of how your body's performing throughout the day, during activities, and during sleep. If you're familiar with the Fitbit or Apple Watch, it's very similar, but on steroids. Getting this stupid thing was not an overnight decision for me. My buddy Mike nagged me for months to try it out. I'm not a fitness guy. I don't run. I don't work out. I don't lift weights. But by now you know this, I like data. And curiosity got the best of me here. I thought that if I could see how my body is reacting during shooting matches throughout the season, I could maybe see how well I'm adapting to the physical and mental aspects of shooting sports. I also wanted a way to prove to my friends that me going to the range for a whole day wasn't just a walk in the park. The Whoop company is a massive step up from the Fitbit or Apple Watch that you're maybe used to. The wrist strap sensor compiles data throughout the day and night, and it syncs information to the app on my phone. Then it's run against a special algorithm that measures your body's performance. Because everybody's different, it calibrates itself over time to get an idea of where your average performance level is. For example, my heart rate, typically pretty high. As I write this just sitting down, my heart rate is 81 beats per minute. 
literally just sitting here for the last 30 minutes or so, doing nothing. When I first strapped this whoop on my wrist, it probably thought my heart was going to explode. It was telling me that I was basically a wild man all day and need to take a chill pill. After about 30 days or so, it started to become more familiar with my benchmark for resting heart rate, activity heart rate, and so on, and it started to give me more normalized performance numbers. So now, instead of thinking that I'm working out all day, it recognizes my heart rate characteristics as simply just normal. Anyway, back to the Whoop service. The company is basically dedicated to running a service that provides measurements of how your body is performing. It's quite unique to each individual. Throughout the day, it will provide a strain value. The strain value is a numeric value between, I don't know, 0 and 21, and it tells you how hard your body has worked throughout the day by measuring heart rate, wake time, sleep quality, oxygen levels, so on and so forth. A zero, nearly impossible, as I usually wake up with a strain value of about one or two. A strain of 21 is nearly impossible. My colleague ran a marathon and he only scored a 19 or a 19 and a half. My record strain, just for reference, is 16.9 after a really, really, really tough day of target setup, 120 rounds of high power, 30 rounds of testing, 50 rounds of offhand practice in pretty warm temperatures. Aside from the strain value, there's another aspect, and that's the sleep quality measurements. If I wear this thing at night, the Whoop will display a recovery value for the body's performance at night during sleep. Like other products, it's able to measure deep sleep, light sleep, REM sleep, SWS deep sleep. It takes measurements of blood oxygen saturation, heart rate, heart rate variability, respiratory rate, number of times you woke up throughout the night, and sleep efficiency, which is basically just how long you're in bed versus how long you're actually asleep. Now, personally, I've never seen a recovery value of 100% for myself. I've had a 98%, and that was probably my peak. On that specific night, I was asleep for a majority of the time in bed, my resting heart rate was really low, and my heart rate variability was far above my nightly average. Here's where I gained a little confidence in the data I was receiving. Strangely enough, I've woken up feeling great, only to score a recovery value of 30% or so. It wasn't until later in the day that I really started dragging ass and really feeling it. Now, vice versa, I've woken up feeling like a zombie risen up from the grave and had a slow start to my morning, but I scored a great recovery. You guessed it, I ran around like a hummingbird after my morning coffee and I never felt the need for a few winks until bedtime. I really don't think it's mental. Fatigue is not mental, sleep quality is not mental, data tracking is not mental, you get the picture. So how does this relate to high power? Well, big picture stuff. I can log match times as an activity within the app. When I record it as an activity, the whoop sensor that's sitting on my wrist really does nothing different physically other than catalog some data into an activity for information feedback later. So whether I log it as an activity or not, it still records my data throughout the day. The Whoop app on my phone has a ton of activities that I could categorize high power as, such as running, hiking, swimming, Gaelic football, and so on. But they also include an activity option called Operations Tactical, which shows a little man in the prone position who looks like he's shooting prone, so I usually just go with that one. Now, every match that I go to, I log as Operations Tactical. From target setup to target teardown is logged in my app. I can see my average heart rate, how long I was in different heart rate zones, how strenuous I pushed myself during the match, how stressed I was throughout the match, and I've been logging this data each match since uh, about mid-April. 
which has been a lot of matches. And I've been able to pick up eh, just a few nuggets here and there. First off, hear this. What we do throughout the day of the match is pretty strenuous. Don't let anybody tell you it isn't. Setting up targets, walking between firing lines with carts and equipment, physically shooting the match, mentally completing a match, putting on a hot jacket in the hot day with a sweatshirt on, and tearing down targets in the whole rigmarole takes a toll on our systems. My average strain for a match typically matches my buddy's strain for a four to six mile run. Think about that. He runs for four to six miles, which I can't do, and we just go shooting. That's awesome. Same physical toll, albeit maybe a little different in how it impacts the body overall, but the heart really perceives this in a similar manner. He's just compressing it into a 30 or 40 minute activity. We're stringing it out over a full day at the range. So that's the first data point I've gathered from this. It's a workout what we do, even if my girlfriend says it's not. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, I've been able to trace my heartbeat during different strings of fire to see how physical and mental stress is affecting my scores. In the past, I've spoken about shooting rapid sit in between heartbeats. I never really knew how quick my heart was beating, so it was kind of tough to determine if shooting at the bottom of the heartbeat would put me on time in the 60 seconds or maybe even behind time. That's a math problem I'm not even going to touch here. What I found is that in both offhand and sitting, and some of rapid prone, honestly, my heart rate sits between 115 and 135 beats per minute. That's fast. And that's in a low-pressure league match where I'm just working on technique or having fun. I have found that, believe it or not, it only varied by about 5 beats per minute where I felt pressure at, say, a match where I'm competing against some heavy hitters like the last one in Milan. Sometimes, and raise your hand if you're with me, sometimes I feel like my heartbeat is the same rate and it's just pounding more out of my chest. Like, the drum beat's the same beat, but the drummer's giving it a full bass drum for some reason. That never helps either. For reference, here's what 115 beats per minute sounds like for my offhand. And now change positions, take a seat on my butt, and here's what 135 sounds like for rapid sit. Shooting at the bottom of the heartbeat and sitting when it's bouncing around the X-ring from uh, mid-ring 10 at 10.30 to the X-ring is kind of tough. As much as I've tried, I still can't eliminate the heartbeat, but it doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. But here's another takeaway. The WHOOP has helped me identify that my heartbeat jumps when it's time to shoot. It changes nothing really, but it does help me know that when I'm shooting, the increase in heart rate really doesn't seem to affect my ability to shoot. The scores are there, the hold is there, so really it's just kind of comforting data to be familiar with. I guess if I had another takeaway, it would be that if I can find a way to slow my heart rate a bit before offhand and rapid sit, maybe I could see a more controlled hold. Maybe that's it. See, we're working through problems live on the air. Well, not live. The last point that I found useful with the Whoop is that it reinforced the fact that adequate sleep is crucial to a good performance the next day. Now, I've shot well when I'm tired, but that's kind of a rare thing. I'm a sleep princess. Ask my buddies who travel with me. During Perry week, it's to bed by 6.30 or 7 each night. Eye mask on, earplugs jammed into my inner ear, Sound machine on. Don't judge me. 
What I've seen throughout the last few months is that I perform better behind the trigger when I've scored a higher sleep recovery score on Whoop from the night before, and vice versa. I'm not using that as an excuse for shooting poorly on days that I just shot poorly, but it was definitely one of the contributing factors. Case in point, I felt like I shot fairly under my ability at Milan on Saturday. I was a bit unsettled and jittery during offhand, and I made some mental errors and win judgment at 600 that I was kind of surprised I made after the fact. Friday night recovery score, 55%. Now Sunday, it was a little better throughout the day and I cleaned up some stuff and I felt a lot better. My Saturday night recovery score, 92%. The night before I just shot my 796 at the league night, sleeping recovery score, 96%. Again, that doesn't mean that every day after a good performance in bed will yield a good score on the range. <laughs> that sounded wrong. Uh, but it does mean that decreased sleeping performance detracts from the potential I may have throughout the day, especially if it's a long day on the range. Put a different way, if the speed limit is 70 miles an hour and I'm at 100% recovery, I can drive 70. If I only score a 50% recovery during sleep, I'm only capable of driving 35 miles an hour. Not a direct comparison, but yeah, you get the picture. Anyway, if you're interested in tracking stuff like this, I really suggest checking out the whoop.com store. It's unnecessary for the sport, but I thought it was neat. I thought it would help me understand more about myself, and it quite honestly motivates me to be a little less lazy. So not a high power purchase, but it's a tool that's been somewhat useful in understanding my body's relation to our wonderful sport. Please note, this is not for F-class shooters because... They lay on their belly, they pull the trigger of a rifle sitting on a rest. Activity strain, zero. Alright, is this one an actual full mental machine, or is this just the thought that I had that has some mental aspects to it? I'm actually not sure. Whatever. We're going to call it a mental machine because that's what the producer tells me to do. I'm going to apologize in advance, this one's a bit scatterbrained, so just bear with me if I don't quite make my point clearly. In my beloved sport of NASCAR, we have, sorry Goose, say it like we're part of a team here, they, they have short run speed and long run speed throughout the race. Short run speed meaning that over a short period of laps, the cars are quick. They can respond to driver inputs throughout the turns, maintain their grip, supply speed on the turn exit, well enough to outrun their counterparts. Long run speed simply means that over a greater number of laps that occur without a pit stop, they've maintained the ability of the car not to lose speed and lap times as quickly as the other cars have. As the tires wear, cars slow over time, so maintaining long run speed is really important for a track where you're going to be out of pit lane for a while. Both are extremely useful in different scenarios, but really bad in others. Where does this all fit in? Okay, something has been readily apparent over the last few years, and I went through it myself. And maybe this doesn't apply to everybody, or if it does, it just different aspects to my point here. My thought was that when you're in the chase for leg points, your mental performance tends to degrade temporarily. From two different friends in the sport who have never met or maybe even know each other exists, I've heard the term lizard brain. Prior to last month, I had never heard that term used, even once. What the hell is lizard brain? 
Lizards are not people. Lizards do not shoot high power. Lizard brain is real, people. It's the deterrent to progress in your performance. It's also something that can be overcome, and I think it's part of a bigger picture that maybe I'm trying to paint up here. When we're in the chase for leg points, we tend to focus on things that give us short run speed. Things that we think are really, really important now, but don't necessarily help later on. This is a tough thought for me to get across, so I'll just do my best here. When we're really digging for getting dirty and trying to cut leg points, we need both short run and long run speed. We need to shoot really well, we need to shoot better than others, and damn it, we need to do it right now. That's my short run speed. Unknowingly, or maybe knowingly, these things add to our long run speed one way or another. In my opinion, what we don't realize is that we do so many G-dang things to try to build that short run speed in an effort to cut points at matches that we tend to be our own worst enemy. In racing terms, think about it this way. A racer can't just drop the pedal to the metal around the whole track and hope to come in first place. They're going to spin their tires thanks to all the torque and horsepower, or they're going to lose the back end around the turn, they're going to slide uncontrollably and send them into the wall and end their day with a wrecked rear quarter panel. The same thing can happen when you're trying to leg up on, well, leg points. I'll use myself as an example for the next couple examples. My leg chase started when a good friend of mine offered his spot at the CMP's Small Arms Firing School course and leg match. He had just cut some points at a previous match, which took him out of the running for scoring any points. Being my first real opportunity at earning any leg points, I took him up on this offer. Lo and behold, after some hard work behind the iron sights, I was able to earn four points out of this. Then I caught the bug. Time to try to leg out and go distinguished. Here's something that I've self-reflected on. In the time that I started chasing points to the point that I went distinguished, as compared to the day I went distinguished to today, my progress on self-improvement was hindered and much slower. Now, at the time, I didn't know that. At the time, I thought I was just trying to compete with the big dogs and do everything I could in my power to make it happen. I took every advancement in my little brain to try to get to a new level. Some were helpful, some gave me short run speed, and some were completely useless. Prime example here. Every leg match, don't laugh too hard. Every leg match, I loaded the best ammo I thought I could at the time. I hand trickled and weighed every single round for every single leg match. Worthwhile? I don't know, maybe. Didn't hurt, that's for sure. I also weighed and sorted all my brass for the match. All those Lake City pieces that had been resized, primer pocket uniform, trim to length, chamfered, deburred. Again, maybe it didn't hurt but I don't think it really helped that much for 200 and 300. It also didn't help that I had already trimmed and chamfered and deburred and pocket uniformed, aka changed the weight of the brass before weight sorting it. I totally missed the point of weighing brass in the first place, which, in case I didn't explain it very well, the point of that is to find the most similar internal volume dimensions but I had already pulled so much brass off the case that the weights were completely pointless to my endeavor. Anyway, did it give me some confidence in the ammo? Sure, it did. Did it really do anything? It's tough to say, but probably not. However, I did get some short run speed out of it because I thought my ammo was bulletproof. In reality, it didn't shoot any better. 
but damn it if I didn't just feel ducky shooting ammo that I thought I could win the match with. See, there's the mental machine in this lecture. So different aspects of what I was doing was really helpful to my short run speed for the chase, but a lot of what I was doing was really harmful, which means it was kind of a short run speed that wouldn't help win the long race in the long run. Like spending hours of my day thinking about how to organize brass for each stage of the match based on weights and firings. Really, dude? If there's a liner 10 at 200 yards and I'm counting on my brass weight to maybe get it into the 10 ring versus a 9, I probably don't deserve that 10. But there's the short run speed again, feeling invincible by having what I thought was great ammo. The long run speed in this, realizing that over time, this was not important and not worth my attention and time. Another, I don't know, half-assed example of some of the short run versus long run speed was barrel life. Short run speed? Choosing to shoot the lowest count barrel life for any leg match. Long run was knowing that barrel usage of 3,000 or more will still hammer and you should still have confidence in it, especially if it's a cut rifling. 2020 and 2021 were rough years on my little shooting brain. Even with the people who had decades of experience telling me that it was unnecessary to worry about barrel life on a cut one, especially with only one season's worth of shooting, for some reason I still couldn't accept it. Maybe I didn't trust the advice for whatever reason because in my mind, these folks were already distinguished national champions and they could afford to bring their A- game to a leg match instead of their A- game, which was really stupid for me to even have go through my brain but again, brain was blurry, I couldn't see the forest for the trees. So the short run here was mostly mental. I used low life barrels thinking that it would help my higher scores. While it certainly may have as compared to a shot out barrel, it was probably unnecessary to even concern myself with, but it was a good confidence booster. I guess the long run speed was that over time I've realized that the more experienced guys and gals were right with their advice. Last year, for example, I had over 3,200 rounds on my beloved Krieger before going to Camp Perry for Cup Week and Board Week, and I learned that it could still throw down. And I was shooting some seriously spicy loads down that tube that really probably should have eroded the riflings faster than I expected. So now I know having a barrel that's relatively new is great, but it's not going to do much better than a well-broken-in barrel. So I can save a few brain cells on that fact. So we're getting kind of to the end of this and I'm realizing that I probably just did a pretty poor job of explaining that, but hopefully you can get some semblance of an idea of what I'm trying to relay here. Even if the short run and long run relationship doesn't make sense, I stand by the bigger picture here that the chase for leg points can really turn your attention in the wrong direction. And after that's all said and done and the goal has been met, the attention stops focusing on some of these BS ideas that you thought were important, like weighing short line brass and having a new barrel and sorting bullets by shininess and sorting primers by smell and you start directing yourself towards attention that's uh, more important like improving your mpa improving your shot process working on wind management and maybe improving some of the mental aspects of the game so for anybody out there that's still listening after my rant here here's the cliff notes you don't need to sort your short line brass your barrel's probably still good unless it's not performing well Sorting bullets by a shininess is unnecessary, and smelling primers is hardly healthy. Remember that you're doing some of the things that I used to do, so please stop. Listen to your mentors. Work on yourself as a shooter, and a better shooter will win the game faster than a better handloader or barrel organizer. 
Anyway, I'm going to go take a quick break because I need to go sort out some 200 yard brass and put a serial number on each of the necks. All right, my people, I have to get out of here because I'm out of breath. I'm out of thoughts. My voice is going and I have to get back to work. If you're in Perry or Atterbury prep mode, may the high power gods be with you. Keep up all your hard work and preparation because it will soon be over and that puts us into silly season come August. I'm honestly not sure when I'll be able to get back to you due to my nasty work schedule, but whenever that time is, I look forward to it, maybe just before Cup Week at Perry. Don't forget, if you or someone you know deserves a shout out for a great accomplishment, let me know. Send me an email with some details. Let's give them some credit for their hard work. And of course, feel free to say hi anytime you'd like. Shoot me an email at jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.